this evolutionary lens does actually provide some of the answers to the sense of chaos and incoherence that pretty much all of us are feeling at least sometimes right now. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to the Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, our guests are evolutionary biologist Brett Weinstein and Heather Hine, who many of you might recognize from their frequent appearances on the Joe Rogan podcast or from their very own show, The Dark Horse Podcast, where they explore current affairs through an evolutionary lens. Now, recently, they've released a brand new book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life, where they combine their decades of expertise into a comprehensive overview of the many lessons that evolution can teach us, including concepts like the precautionary principle, Sucker's Folly, Chesterton's Fence, and more. Now, this was a wonderfully expansive conversation, and we explored many of the ways in which technology and capitalism are being driven by our ancient genetic wiring. This includes exploring the impacts of social media, of technological infrastructure, of capitalism and its incentives, uh, the biological influences of complacency due to technological comfort, and far, far, far much more than I can even begin to summarize here. Um, They are two unbelievably thought-provoking and articulate individuals, and I can't wait for you to hear more about what they have to say. So let's waste no more time and just jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the Feedback Loop, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hine. So your latest book, your most recent book, um, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges to Modern Life, came out about six weeks ago. And so I think a great place to start would be right there in the subtitle, which makes me wonder how do evolution and the modern world relate in a way that is relevant right now for people? Well, in every way. Yeah. <laughs> the, what people don't intuit is that um, in order for adaptive evolution to function, in order for it to do what it more or less says in the brochure, which is adapt creatures to their environment, the environment has to look like the one that your ancestors lived in. To the extent that your environment is radically different from your ancestors' environment, then you won't be well adapted to it, no matter how efficient the process was. Now, human beings are slightly exceptional in this regard, or maybe even very exceptional in the sense that we adapt to new environments as part of our, uh, our way of being. Uh, our way of moving through time. So we're better at it than any other creature. However, there is a rate of change that is so rapid that even our extraordinary toolkit for changing with different circumstances is unable to keep up. And our contention in the book is that we live now in a constant state of what we call hypernovelty. Hypernovelty is that state in which the rate of change is too high for us to adapt to it. I guess I would I would add the thing that went unsaid there is that we argue in the book, and we are certainly not the first to do so, but it is still a uh, a remarkably unaccepted claim in some circles, um, including in many disciplines in academia, that evolution doesn't stop at the neck, right? That mm-hmm. you know our our brains are evolved, and you know most people would agree with that. Obviously, you know the prefrontal lobe expanding is a product of evolution, but. Um, to argue then that our behavior is not evolutionary or our culture is not evolutionary is actually uh, black boxing uh, what it is that we are as evolved creatures. And we argue effectively, you, you, you would have to be arguing from faith rather than from a scientific perspective to, to say that. And so you know, the, the principle that we introduce uh, in the first chapter of the book, the Omega Principle, argues indeed that all of what humans do uh, being downstream of our genetics is in fact evolutionary, and all of you know everything cultural, including our our technology, everything that we produce is in fact evolutionary. Yeah, you say that culture evolved in service of the genes, and as you mentioned, there technology is certainly an aspect of culture. That can be, I feel like, a bit of a hard connection for people to understand how culture and technology could 
be functioning uh, at the behest of genetics. Could you maybe tie those two together in a little bit of a way for us? Sure. I mean, the fact is this really should be obvious to us. And it's a, a testament to the effectiveness of a kind of miseducation that we all suffered through that it, that it isn't clear to people. But the way to think about it is this. You have a mind. That mind is capable of causing your physical body to spend its time in different ways. To the extent that our culture was not acting in service to our genes, it would be wasting their opportunity. So the genes would look dimly on cultural traits, especially expensive ones that were not specifically in some way contributing to the uh, propagation of genes into the future. What the way we say this is that culture is downstream of genes, and that means that the genes must be on average served by culture in order for cultural traits to persist, which means that if we look at something like, let's say, religious traditions, um, and we say, well, it, who says that that's a product of evolution or adaptive evolution? Well, it has to be, because were it not, the amount of time wasted on religious belief, and maybe even more importantly, the amount of constraint that the that religious beliefs um, exert over the functioning of genes and, and physical bodies is so extreme, the cost is so high, that were this, um, you know, a mind virus, or even just simply independent of the interests of the genes, then the waste would cause those who didn't believe to radically outperform those who did, and therefore the world would constantly be uh, overtaken by atheists, um, which it hasn't been. Maybe, maybe that is beginning to happen. That may be happening in the modern era, but to say that these traditions themselves were a mind virus is nonsense. Well, and can I, can I take it just a slightly different direction for a moment? Um, most people who think of themselves as educated, uh, but who may reject the idea that say religion is evolutionary, Will, if you tell them about examples from animals in which, for instance, a parasite has infected them and altered their behavior, will say, oh, wow, that's impressive, and not question the research finding that you are talking about. For instance, you know, there, there are many species of fungus that infect insects and drive them uh, to behave in such ways that they are better distributors of the fungus themselves. You know, they will go to a particular spot in the canopy and clamp down on a leaf before dying. And, you know, this is not, it is not the ant or the grasshopper or whatever it is uh, doing its own bidding. It is clearly being driven by the infection in, in this case. And of course, there, is, um, there, there are many examples in which it's not direct pathogenic infection, but where we talk about the behavior of other animals uh, that are driven by evolution. So it is, uh, it is a you know, patently you know, religious perspective to say, well, humans are different. With, yeah, we, can, we can talk about behavior and effectively the kinds of uh, much more trivial, much simpler, but kinds of culture and animals and understand that from an evolutionary perspective. But oh no, don't you dare when we start talking about humans. When you, know, when you frame it that way, it becomes more obvious that we're just, we're holding ourselves to a different standard and frankly, black boxing, you know, what, what is it then, if not evolution? Mm -hmm. What is it that you are claiming it is emerging from if it's not downstream of the same process that has created all other life on earth? So this makes me think of the work by Sapolsky, and I don't know if you're familiar with the one example, but I believe in Africa there was a, a theme park that moved in and he was studying a troop. The alpha males ate the trash, they got tuberculosis, the betas and the females took over, and the culture shifted very much from like a more aggressive kind of culture to one that's more pro-social. And he was basically saying testosterone in that case actually switched from aggression to pro-social behavior because the testosterone seemed to be focused on maintaining status or gaining status rather than actually aggression. What that makes me think of here specifically is, is there a way that we can shape the culture in different directions that is better for us or worse for us? Even though it is at the behest of the genes, there does seem to be some kind of power that we may have to shape how those genes manifest. A absolutely. And, and we must. And that is, you know, that is one of the messages of the book, that understanding that what we are is evolutionary is neither uh, 
uh, an admission of we've given up now, <laughs> we just have to accept what it hands us, nor is it imagining that everything that we've been handed is either good or bad. You know, let, let's let us talk about, for instance, the fact that rape is evolutionary and everyone can understand that that is morally reprehensible, but so too are the ways uh, that women have evolved to avoid rape and the laws in the countries in which we live in have evolved to protect women from rape. All of those things are evolutionary. So, you know, talking about the ugliness of evolution, of, you know, of rape, of genocide, of female genital mutilation um, is certainly not putting a moral value on it, but uh, we also can talk about those things which most of us can agree are, are beautiful and the products of evolution, such as, you know, the, the, um, the resistance to rape, like I just talked about, but also a mother's love and a stranger's, um, you know, a stranger helping another person on the street. So, in fact, we argue in the book that we have to effectively rebel against the hegemony of the genes because it has wired us, the genes have wired us for lineage versus lineage competition. And if we continue to play that game with the kind of weaponry we have at our disposal, with the level of interdependence that exists globally, with the number of us consuming at the rate that we are, it will be a very short ride. So we have to take control away from the genes. We have to do so wisely, throwing out uh, their hegemony entirely or rebelling against features of our programming that are likely to be inflexible is a fool's errand. We have to recognize that we actually have an arbitrary map of flexibility. Some things are very easily changed and some things are highly resistant to change. And we need to walk into this landscape and say, all right, with the tools at our disposal, how is it that we can set a course that is both safe, stable, liberating, fair, that, that does all of these things without setting ourselves a task that can't be achieved? Mm -hmm. And is culture the domain in which we, we I guess, enact that rebellion? Uh, almost the opposite, but the okay. terminology won't be familiar to your, your listeners. We argue that there is a flip-flop um, in built into human beings between two modes, between consciousness, which we define very specifically, and culture, where consciousness is the place where new programming is bootstrapped. And culture is the place that it is efficiently packaged for passage between generations and for operationalizing. So um, what we must do, and we have a, a metaphor that we, we like, uh, the metaphor is campfire, where um, ancient humans, at the point that their eyes were no longer well-tuned to the amount of light because night had set in, would gather around a fire for obvious reasons, and they would basically borrow all of the highly complex architecture in their heads and parallel process problems, which would sound like storytelling and, you know, queries and arguments and singing and all of the things that people would do around a campfire, that that is the place where when human beings have been faced with novelty, where the ancestral wisdom does not answer the question of what, what are we to do, they would have posed things to each other and the collective, the lineage, would have come up with answers that are far superior to the sum of their individual cognitive output, right? That that emergent cognition, that emergent con consciousness would be the place where basically a prototype of a new program was generated. It would then be deployed into the world. That which wasn't right would be corrected. That which was right would be refined. And at the point that they had a program that looked like, here's how we behave in this new place or under these new circumstances, that thing would be encoded into the kinds of narratives that allow people to pass on an instruction set from one generation to the next. Yeah, you speak about the virtual campfire in the book, and I think you mentioned, though, how it fails to... Uh, fact check claims in the in the modern world, whereas in the at the campfire sense, you know, under Dunbar's number, we would have uh, relations with one another in the sense where we would understand each other's nuances and our behaviors and whether we could be trusted or not. But in this new modern landscape, you know, how does this propensity function when we're now connected to eight billion people instead of one hundred and fifty, with no ability to tell whether you're a person acting with integrity or not? This, this is one of, this is precisely one of the big challenges of the virtual anything, 
right? And of, of the metaphor of campfire as opposed to the literal campfire, because we argue that certainly there is extraordinary value in literal campfire. And, you know, <clears throat> there have been much, many fewer campfires in the last year and a half because of COVID, but also just decreasing in amount, I think, over the course of the 21st and 20th century. And <clears throat> um, part of Part of what we lose, um, you know, we don't know yet. You know, we, we, we speak against reductionism. And once you find metrics, uh, forgetting that those metrics aren't the only thing that were true about the thing. Imagining that the metric, you know, that the, uh, the metric is the territory, as it were. Is <laughs> you know, that the, the, the naturalistic fallacy, I think, that you speak um, about? No, well, the naturalistic fallacy is more about um, imagining. Is versus ought. Yeah, is okay. versus ought. Um, so, so again, this you know, it, imagining that uh, because because some people have money right now, they ought you know they're they're supposed to have money, and that that's an indicator of fitness. Um, but the you know the metrics in part that we have imagined are relevant are connecting our brains this way as we're doing now and you know even more reductionist just through text through social media and such but there is so much embodied in our connections with one another that some of which we do know are missing from the virtual space and some of which we don't even yet know mm -hmm. so the the fact of embodied cognition being real of sense sensory interpretation of the world being actually an action um, and not just a um, an analysis uh, suggests that when we get together in virtual campfire space, there will be things missing beyond even the signals of you know growing irritation on the part of the other person or uh, being enthralled on the part of the other person, but other signals that could be that would be conveyed if you were in sharing actual space with one another through some channels such as smell and um, tactile indicators just of, of air moving through the space because your body is moving. Things that we are not conscious of, but that doesn't make them less real. Mm -hmm. When you speak to the precautionary uh, principle in the book as well, and as you're saying that it's making me wonder, with such a complex world, you know, in a world that is so hyper novel, how much capacity do we have to really know what issues are going to be coming, you know, what hidden costs there are down the line um, when technology is moving so rapidly, changing the environment? That's a very real problem. I think everyone who has um, taken a careful look at the precautionary principle realizes that although at the level of a principle, it is a high quality object, that operationalizing it is not a simple matter. It may not even be possible. Mm -hmm. um, that is why we have added to the precautionary principle, the idea of reversibility. So that if one takes a, a very um, careful approach to progress and attempts to operationalize the precautionary principle as well as possible, but without making it too onerous, and then you discover that something that you did had an impact you didn't see coming and it's bad. If you've built the capacity to reverse course in, that will have slowed the rate of damage and it will mean that you already have the plan for what to do next and you won't be stuck in the situation that we now are finding ourselves in extremely regularly, right? Mm -hmm. So from the financial collapse in 2008, the Deepwater Horizon disaster, Fukushima, all of these things have the same hallmark, which is we in the public don't know that these processes are happening at a scale uh, of this sort until the accident occurs. And then what we find out is the people who are most expert on earth about this process don't know what to do to undo it. They cannot put the toothpaste back in the tube. And the point is, if the point is, look, your toothpaste seems great, but as you deploy toothpaste in tubes, you need to deploy, you need to build the technology to put toothpaste back into tubes. So as soon as something goes wrong, the point is, hey, let's let's retube that paste. You know, that's what we got to do. Um, and, you know, that I think people don't realize how important this is. But once you realize you're you're messing around in a complex system where even an honorable attempt to deploy the precautionary principle is certain to fail sometimes, that this is just a, a, a must for a, a long-lived civilization. And it, and it potentially allows people on uh, who at least imagine themselves to be on opposite sides of the political aisle 
uh, to come together around an embrace of progress. You know, I, we, we, we at this point know many, many conservatives, and I have yet to met any to meet any who actually think what we need to do is, is go back to some time that frankly is fictional, right? And in which um, a whole lot of people um, and you know perhaps almost everyone simply had lives that were in fact more nasty British in short by and large, right? Um, to, to paraphrase Hobbes. But what we do see um, as a slight disagreement between sort of, you know, I guess old school progressives like ourselves and, and many conservatives, is um, and a, a concern that so much of what has passed for progress um, has in fact caused more harm than good and has been and, and has not been reversible. And so pretty much everyone, I think, knows that we need to move forward and that many of the advances that we are making in technology, for instance, are extraordinary and valuable. Uh, and we will get, in fact, a lot more buy-in um, if every single one of the advances as they're, you know, before they're brought to market, as they are into development, part of what is absolutely mandated is you must, you must be able to reverse this. Mm. And, you know, frankly, this, would, this will be better for everyone. And it will also then be able to move forward with far less you know, infighting among the people who might be wanting to use the products. I think this actually might be a new point and I, I quite like it. The discussion that you will have between conservatives and progressives is very different if the progressives don't feel like they're running into obstructionists and if the conservatives don't feel like they're, they're talking with crazed children who don't understand that things are complex and they're going to mess up something that matters, right? <laughs> if the point is, yeah, let's figure out what we can fix, but let's not, you know, go in with both feet till we know that it's actually, you know, deep enough for the jump, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. that that conversation to me sounds like the adult conversation. And what we're currently having is two different kinds of kids fighting. Yeah. Is there a bit of a catch 22 here, I guess, or a kind of a trap in the sense that <clears throat> if technology is acting and is acting in service to the genes and it creates something like social media which makes sense for a social ape and then it starts to hijack you know the attention you start to interface through the screens you start to be anonymous maybe you're lacking interpersonal things which leads to depression and stress and all these things and now your brain is actually in an environment that makes it very hard to work through these issues and reverse the very thing that you kind of were naturally inclined towards because of evolution in the first place. Does that make sense? It feels like we're kind of pushed into a trap that then we create an environment that makes it hard to get out of that trap. I think there are, there are two things overlapping and it's important to separate them. The thing you're talking about is real, but it's sort of, it would function, that would be true no matter what was driving social media, right? If social media were, um, you know, open source, uh, nonprofit, whatever it is, it would still have this, hey, this is novel, I can't tell what's true and what isn't phenomenon to it. But it'd be a lot easier to solve because it wouldn't be running up against a business model problem. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, you know, it's been said a thousand times, um, but it, if the thing is free, you're the product, right? That thing haunts our interactions. The algorithms do a wonderful job of something that we've never been uh, brought in on. We don't know what they're for, right? We can deduce certain things. They're supposed to keep us engaged. But um, to the extent that this thing is clearly causing uh, us to lose the capacity to collectively reason, um, we don't know why. And one thing that is certainly a contributor is that the purpose of the algorithm almost has to be to enrich those who own it right? Not to enhance the thinking of those who are subject to it. It does point to a, a key difference, I think, between the types of examples that you led with, Brett, and that we're now talking about, which is that when, you know, Fukushima and the Deepwater Horizon disaster, for instance, were, um, yes, technological failures, um, and social media can, uh, can, be framed as um, not a failure in terms of the business model, but um, technology run amok and, and taking over the, the human brain exactly as, as you posed, um, you know, really taking advantage of what was there all along. So to put reversibility, to build reversibility into a system like 
um, a nuclear reactor or a, you know, a, a very deep water oil drilling rig um, is going to run up against short-term human time horizon uh, thinking far less, far less embeddedly than will a, a product that we are all using on a daily and even hourly basis. Oh, clearly reversibility is, is in and of itself a difficult problem to solve. Yeah. On the other hand, you will notice, I mean, it is the identical thing, right? You have people in Silicon Valley, people who were actually um, part of the team that build the algorithm having to outwit themselves, right? Having to set up strict rules about when they can interact with their devices, having their secretaries keep their devices away from them. You know, they've clearly let a monster loose that even those who know more about what's in those algorithms than anybody are incapable of resisting their power. So it's, it's once again, it's the same problem in just a new form. And whatever the answer is, right? The thing needs a kill switch, right? And I don't mean a kill switch that suddenly you know, separates us all from each other and renders us helpless. I mean, the algorithms that are adjusting what we see and understand, that thing needs to be able to be turned off. And, you know, the irony is most people don't remember this. You used to be able to know what other people saw on Google because the search was universal. Then it became personal, but you could toggle it to universal, which wasn't all that great because nobody was using the universal, but at least you could see what the uninflected version was. Then that opportunity disappeared. Now we have no idea what other people see, right? We have no idea to what extent we're living in the Truman Show. And, you know, I, did anybody ever think that was safe, right? Yeah. Could that possibly have been imagined to be a good idea from the point of view of planet Earth? It's hard, hard to believe. Well, and this feels like another issue where evolution created something we all use in the modern world, like money, so that we could exchange energy. But now we have incentives that require you to use that energy to do these things that kind of exploit other people. So is a lot of the issue here in, in terms of reversibility, the fact that a corporation, for instance, has uh, a responsibility to its shareholders to basically not be reversible, you know, to to undermine these precautionary ideas because frankly, it's not worth the time or money. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, they have an obligation to um, make themselves a permanent feature of the landscape. So you're right, they do have a fiduciary responsibility that runs exactly against um, what would be in, in our interest. And that's, it's a very important point, but the, if we go up one level, we're also just dealing with the fact that, you know, again, this has been said by others too, but the market is supposed to be a tool that is supposed to serve human beings. It has become quite the opposite, right? And um, I sometimes say markets are the very best tool that we have ever discovered for figuring out how to do things but they are an absolutely appalling tool for figuring out what to do. And because we've set them about both tasks, we are now living a nightmare because what, what markets will do if you sort of set them loose, like you know, setting a saw loose in the workshop to see if it makes furniture, is it will find every defect in the human psyche and exploit it, which it's now doing. Right. So at some level, what we need to do is not reject the idea of markets or capitalism, not embrace them as if they're the solution to every problem, but say, hey, look, there's certain things they're really good at. Let's use them for that. And let's keep them away from the stuff that they destroy. I mean, effectively, mm -hmm. we want to use them as a tool that we control as opposed to letting them be a selective force over which we have no control. I would say it even one step stronger, which is that what we must do is harness them, right? The best possible thing you can do is say, all right, here is a market and the way I'm going to get it to solve my problem is I'm going to use very gentle perturbations to cause it to, to give me the answer to this question that I can't answer with brute force, right? I'm going to get the market to answer that question. But the point is, it shouldn't be, you know, where are these people's blind spots and how can we get them to give us money by exploiting them, right? That is becoming really dangerous and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the clock's ticking. So <clears throat> what is the way to kind of combat that, right? Because if you want people to make a living, if you have people raised in this kind of scarcity mindset, if they're growing up and feeling like they need to get money to survive, we live in this status-oriented society and we have all these legal structures in place, 
I love everything you're saying, but there's so many barriers in the way. Like how, how do we start to maybe nudge some of the incentives in these uh, models in the right way? How do we harness, as you were saying, uh, the market rather than being controlled by it? Um, it's a tough answer. In part, I would say some of us recognized this problem 20 years ago and that part of what happened was we were accused of being chicken little. And so now we have a much harder to pro problem to solve. Maybe it's even not solvable, right? Mm -hmm. But one of the things to recognize is that you got to figure out which of your chicken littles are actually trying to tell you something while it's still a relatively easy thing to address. But the simple, simplest answer to your question, um, the last chapter of our book, uh, The Fourth Frontier, mm -hmm. is about architecting a steady state that serves human needs, a non-utopian steady state that actually leaves us liberated, that is as light-handed as possible, but does the job that you're talking about. And um, for those of us who have been in the game B movement and thought carefully about what could possibly allow that, even if you had the plan, right, you would need the power to impose the plan, right? Nope, can't work that way. In fact, we know that won't work. What will work is if you build something that is adopted, right, that people opt into because it solves their problems, right? They want it in the same way, you know, we all opted into cell phone. Nobody had to mandate that we get one because it solves so many problems. But the problem is it dragged this insane business model into our lives so deeply that we're now suffering from it. But if you imagine something that was as useful as a cell phone, but wasn't predatory, that it would spread because people would want it, right? That that's the kind of, that's the, the route to a fourth frontier, right? You can't blueprint it from here. You can prototype your way there. But the thing that has to cause it to spread is that people want in because it actually solves the problems that they care about. Yeah. Are we, are we running into an issue with that maybe because of, um, why makes me think of, I guess, Nassim Taleb and the, the idea of anti-fragility. <clears throat> and I guess in another way, it makes me think of the fact that we're too comfortable, right? We we don't actually want to do those things because it's much easier to have these scripts. And I think you say in the book, you know, the set it and forget it mentality is very appealing to us in most of our lives. And it feels like that's a technology has made things very comfortable for a lot of people in the first world. And there's not really that much motivational energy to change things. It's true. And yet most people, I assume it's still most people, have had experiences that were deeply challenging and maybe even um, unpleasant, maybe even terrifying, maybe even very risky in the moment, uh, and probably all range of those things. And afterwards, they came to understand those experiences as some of the highlights of their lives. Right, the, the moment that they came to a better understanding, that they pivoted and moved in a new direction, that they came to see someone in a new light and now they're going off with them to, to, create, to create amazing things together. So this inability to think about what might be true in the long term when in the moment things are rough is very human. It's very, you know, it's very lifelike. You know, it's it's all of life, right? Uh, but the example that is easiest, and I, you know, I would, I would claim that there are many examples like this, but the example which will be easiest for pretty much everyone to recognize whether or not they themselves have experienced this is that we all know what junk food is, and we all know the junk food isn't good for us. Some of us um, used to eat junk food and don't anymore. Some of us were lucky enough never to really be exposed to it in childhood even, and grew up in families in which um, it was dismissed by the adults and so never had an appeal and so doesn't even register as food. And it's certainly harder to be in the first camp, I, I, I think. I, I, I happen to have been in a family where I, I wasn't exposed and so it doesn't look like food to me, but I know lots of people who have eaten who have eaten a diet full of junk food and have weaned themselves from it and don't live, there you go, right? Like lots and lots of people. And do you live a life daily in which you feel a sense of loss and that you're not eating wonderful food? No, not at all. Of course not. You learn, you're, you're, and it's not, so it's not, you're not living a life of privation. You're not living a life that is wanting for extraordinary taste sensations. 
you are actually experiencing a much broader, a much broader array of extraordinary tastes and you're healthier, right? Both of those things are true. So if junk food exists, does junk sex exist? Yes, it does. Does junk media exist? Yes, it does. Does junk just about everything exist? Yes, it does. And so to say, you know, you can teach yourself, you can train yourself to wean yourself from that thing and find the more extraordinary thing over here does not mean, and you will forever after wish that you were back in the junk food eating stage. Mm -hmm. There is a transformation that is, that is actually not just possible, but, um, but it comes somewhat naturally, even though when you're in, when you're in the moment of uh, thinking about McDonald's all the time, it's hard to imagine how you could possibly be as satisfied with something else. Yeah, it's, it, it, and this treads very close to the question about what um, the difference between children and adults is, right? And there are plenty of small, smart kids. There are no wise kids. Might be mm -hmm. wise beyond their years, but they're not wise. And the point is wisdom is really about the discovery of the value of delayed gratification. And it's not like learning to live with less. It's like the thing that you want that's actually better is going to take some investment, right? It isn't available right now. Um, but I would, I would also just add your point about um, the motivation that people have is also tied to what we've been calling the Pinker problem. And I don't mean to pick on Steven Pinker. I actually think Pinker has done us a service in making his argument, and he's not wrong, right? This is in many ways the best of times, right? It is not violent. It is actually surprisingly fair. Not everywhere, not everyone has access, but the, the degree to which things have gotten good is remarkable. But notice this, at the very same time that you can say things have never been safer, better, more plentiful, it is also true that we are now completely dependent on an electrical grid that is vulnerable to solar storms, right? We could lose a third of the country's access to electricity in an instant, right? And not be able to replace it for months on end. Nuclear reactors that are dependent on electricity in order to keep from melting down might go pop and turn into little nuclear volcanoes. So it is simultaneously the best of times and inconceivably dangerous, right? We don't think about Carrington events, right? Because it's easy not to. But the fact that we are unmotivated doesn't mean that there aren't things for which we should be very motivated. We should be frightened at the level of risk that we face because we're so dependent on a grid that could fail, you know, uh, instantaneously. Um, so both things are true. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of correlations, I think, there between what you guys are talking about and what our company does, which, you know, a lot of our focus is on the United Nations SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. And <clears throat> as you're talking there, it makes me think, you know, we're trying to teach people that we're moving so quickly to this point that technology is going to change in a way that makes it hard to understand. So we're going to help you. But a lot of that's about building, um, I guess, like public structures entities that address these issues and in the book you talk specifically about in times of abundance like the pinker problem that like the mayans for instance turned to massive uh, public works they they focused on massive infrastructure and communal things and it feels like that would be a great solution to what you're talking about because then we would build redundancy um, into our system and our technology would be more beneficial rather than uh i guess fragile and ready to break at any moment. Right. And again, it runs into the same problem that you were pointing to earlier, which is that to the extent that as a civilization, the right thing for us to do is figure out how to invest the surplus so that our civilization does get better, fairer, that it becomes durable. So it really can be here in a thousand years. Those are all things that we could, we could spend that surplus on. But the fiduciary responsibilities inside of corporations run in exactly the opposite direction right? This has always been a question with things like fossil fuels, right? Even if, you're, even if you're not a believer in climate change, there's a question about why would you burn this resource this quickly? Wouldn't, you know, if this is a useful resource, what is the optimal rate at which to use it rather than let's, you know, drive, you know, one person in a 6,000 pound vehicle subsidized by the government. I mean, this is just insane that you would set a course that would cause you to extract it all and burn it quickly. That's just not, that's not wise by any metric, unless you're the people doing the extracting and getting paid for it. 
Yeah. It makes me think of the example you use in the book about your boys, um, about either having surgery or a cast versus having a splint. And it makes me wonder as we look forward, how do we, I guess, balance that tension between wisdom and just doing the hard work on a, on a, you know, social consciousness level versus outsourcing to like technology. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is to get back to your point about, um, you know, Taleb's concept of anti-fragility, which is kind of the formalization of use it or lose it. Right. Which is not a universally applicable thing, but certainly for just about um, all the complex systems that we're discussing here and, and in our book, it's true. And yet we've forgotten that it's true or we're pretending that we never knew it. And so everyone knows that this is true of muscle mass, right? You, you, you use your muscles or else they will atrophy and you will become weaker. It turns out it is also true of, of bone density. And we don't think that our, we think of our skeletons, for instance, as stable. Once, you know, once we become adults, our skeletons are what they are, but no, they can continue to, to change as well. And this is true of all of these other systems as well, that we need to actually continue to, you know, to get back to, to a question from a few, a few interactions ago, we need to continue to seek discomfort and it will be easier to do because ultimately that will make us better at what we're doing and stronger and more capable and more capable of experiencing joy as well as, um, as being productive in the world. And the, it will be easier to convince ourselves to do, seek the discomfort, the more experiences we have in the background, you know, in, in the past, um, in which we can say, oh, right, I remember that that wasn't that much fun in the moment, um, but afterwards I, I came to love it. And, you know, the more of that you do, and just, you know, the simplest examples are going to be, you know, about the individual and about the physical body, no matter how much you love a particular exercise, say biking, um, you know, you, you will have had the experience of looking outside and talking yourself out of getting yourself in the appropriate gear and getting on your bike. Even if not only do you feel better after biking, but you actually feel better as soon as you're on your bike still the activation energy required to get on the bike is absurdly high. And this is a matter of forming a habit and getting your brain to remember, actually, dude, you're being an idiot. Like get on your bike and do it and everything will get better. Actually, it's um, my favorite one of these is you're standing in the water on the side of the river you know that you're going to be cold for 15 seconds when you dive in and you know that you'll have fun after that and it'll all be over. But the 15 seconds keeps you from, you know, it's very hard to get yourself to just accept the 15 seconds or the putting on the bike clothes and the going out in the cold before you've warmed up or whatever, whatever it is. And it, it really does um, prevent you from doing it. But I also want to point out another feature of this, which is there's this puzzle I don't know who originated it, but the question is um, the cat, if you have a skittish cat who hides under the bed when strangers come over, it's very hard for the cat to learn the lesson that the strangers aren't actually a hazard because as far as the cat knows, the reason it didn't get eaten was that it hid under the bed, right? And so it keeps reinforcing this lesson. And it's like, well, thank God I got under there in time, you know? <laughs> um, and so the problem is for people who don't have the experience in the world of when I sign up for this much discomfort or I sign up for this much, you know, if you're, if you're going to build an object, you don't know how to build, there's going to be a lot of what might feel frustrating to most people until you realize that actually you can't skip that step. And at the end of it, when you produce the thing that actually does something and you say, Hey, look at this, I made a something right. That, um, reward is incredible, but you're in order to get that reward, you have to accept the equivalent of diving into the cold water. And if you never do it, if nobody in your family taught you how to do it, if nobody figured out how to motivate you in school to do it, you may not even realize that that's the way it works. And so, you know, what do you do with all the skittish cats to introduce them to the the strangers and get them to realize that in fact their fears were misplaced. Well, there's a corollary of this too, that um, if you haven't been forced into uh, say a um, social media sabbatical, right? Uh, then at the point that you're on your computer, which is where you also do your work, but where those, those apps also live and 
<clears throat> you find yourself, you know, in, enmeshed in the actual work that you love. And then you end up in your browser and Twitter is open or something. Oh, maybe I'll just, <laughs> right? Everyone's done that, right? Yep. Even, even as you can be conscious, and for the most part, this isn't conscious, but even I actually had exactly this experience this morning is why I'm talking about it. I was conscious of, oh, I'll just go check. Wait a minute. I'm literally doing the work that I love. I am, I am creating, I'm, I'm researching and writing for to be to, new material to be viewed in the world. Twitter has nothing to do with that. Why would I go there? Until and unless you have actually forced yourself through some, you know, either by more technological means um, or by, you know, moving, putting yourself in a position in the world where you actually don't have access to the thing, which we used to do with our students all the time, take them to places where there just was no cell or internet service. You don't necessarily know that that little, oh, I'll just check is actually keeping you from your highest and best self and keeping you from the things that you already know that you love. Yep. No, it's, it's a hundred percent that the, and you know, of course that's not an accident, right? Somebody has figured out how to trigger that. Oh, I'll just drop by Twitter uh, thing. And um, frankly, they're obviously fairly indifferent to the harm caused by the, Oh, I'll just check Twitter phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people like you were hired to make sure that was a very attractive uh, Twitter session that you had this morning, Heather. <laughs> right. Do you think that there is uh, something to be said here for the sense of safety one feels? Like, as, as you were saying that, Heather, it made me think, from my understanding, we're more likely to be able to delay that gratification or catch ourselves in that bad behavior if we feel safer and less stressed and 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 whatnot so it makes me think that one of the better ways to create culture and technology that carries a lot of these evolutionary principles that you think are so important to helping us move forward requires us to along the way kind of lift up the people who are suffering most amongst us like because even even people who are the higher ups even the people who run these companies and create this technology i think a lot of the uh, motivation for them comes from probably maybe some childhood trauma, maybe some cultural narratives that make them think they need to do these things that make them feel not safe. And I'm wondering if a lot there's a interplay here, I guess, between you know the approach and withdrawal that an animal has in in a scary world and what kind of parts of their brain they're going to access to to create their environment. Yeah, um, you know safe spaces as it is uh, currently imagined doesn't make a lot of sense, but actually mm. understanding yourself to be safe um, and thereafter safe to take risks is absolutely necessary for people to achieve um, the best that they can achieve over in the you know, intellectual, creative, analytical uh, exploration realms. And too often we don't have access to that now. I think there's, um, I'm uh... Somehow I'm stuck in this theme, but because every moment of quiet, of mental quiet, is actually a missed opportunity from the point of view of somebody who wants to capture your attention, we are being actively trained out of the very thing that is necessary to solve difficult problems, to therefore make useful progress. And we used to see this in our classes. We would deliberately go well out of our way to make it so that students did not, um, during some part of a lecture that they didn't find particularly fascinating, drop into social media on their phones. Because the point is actually the most important things you're gonna learn aren't sound biteable, which means you can't have a circuit that because you're not being rewarded this instant with some insight you can take away, that you go do something else that's more rewarding because then you're, you know, anything that's three minutes out is beyond you, right? And so, I mean, in, in the extreme case, um, the most interesting puzzles that, that I've worked on as, a, as an evolutionary theorist, they can take a decade of patience. And it's not like you're working on them all the time, but you have to be able to put them aside and say, that's just going to sit on the back burner because I don't have enough to solve it with what I know. But at some point, the thing that does solve it crosses your desk and it's like, aha, I'm pulling it off the back burner. Well, if your sense is I either can solve it now or it's not solvable, um, then you just limit. Right. And, but I mean, the best, the best 
work often does require backburnering. That's a phrase. It is now. Um, and it is, it is well understood at this point that so many leaps in insight happen while we sleep. And part of why that is going to be the case, I think, is that we're not also doing other things at the time. That we have allowed that, that yes, we are not actively, it's not the forefront of our mind. It's not the thing we are consciously working on, but we haven't replaced what we are consciously working on with a whole bunch of other blather coming in at us, right? And so, you know, one of the things that I, I actively did when we were teaching in, in my classrooms was explicitly like the one the one thing that I wanted in my classrooms that I always made requests for whenever it came time to request actual classrooms was a big window into nature, like literally a big window that looked out onto actual nature. Because, you know, in a two, three, four hour class in which there's going to be a little bit of moving around, but mostly it's sort of butts and seats and that's very passive. And of course, everyone's attention will stray at some point that if it didn't, that's insane, right? Like yeah. everyone's attention will stray at some point. I wanted to give them something real to look at, to think on when they weren't actively engaged with me up there or the class conversation that was not going to replace what we were doing with something so different and so virtual and so social and therefore and, and also seeming so preeminent and necessary and urgent that the conversation that we were having in the class would be replaced. Yeah, no, I think this is a uh, very wise and the experience. Certainly we have all, I would hope, um, been lost in thought in a walk in the woods or its equivalent. And the point is, there's chaos coming in through your eyes, but it's not disruptive of thought. It's actually stimulating right. of thought. I yeah. think there's a whole body of work on that by Kaplan and Kaplan, the attention restoration theory. And they talk about how the the fractal nature of, of I guess, nature, um, it, ha it creates like a soft fascination that doesn't drain our attention. Whereas like the modern world has creates detention fatigue, attention fatigue. Um, and to your earlier point, Brad, it makes me think of, uh, one of my favorite uh, favorite thinkers in the world. Uh, he just passed away, unfortunately. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Uh, he he kind of coined the the idea of flow. He talks about you know, well, I don't know if it was him, but the research has shown that when you do something like check your phone, it takes about twenty three minutes on average, from what I understand, to get back into a flow state, and it feels like this might be really a a tragedy of what you call the hyper novel world that in a lot of ways, I think you said it's even infantilizing us and, and kind of keeping us trapped in this uh, not good childlike mentality where we're never really like growing up to take on responsibilities. So this attention thing actually seems like a very big part of um, the evolutionary mismatch that we have with the modern world. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. I'm reminded just anecdotally um, over the summer, it's, you know, as, as, as you know, it's it's not that conducive now to getting out on the water. But um, in the summers here in, in Portland on the Willamette River, I go paddle boarding and I, I tend to paddle for 30 or 40 minutes and then go to one of the uninhabited islands and write. And it's exactly enough time to, you know, whatever it was I was doing back at shore, back where I left the car, whatever stupid social media thing I was engaging in, if I was, by the time I paddled for 30 or 40 minutes, my head is good and clear. And as long as I don't make the mistake of picking up my phone at that point, and you know, usually service is poor enough that, um, that that's, that's, a, that's easy not to do, um, it's very easy to fall right into, into writing at that point. And um, this, this is actually a, a kludge, I think, to exactly escape from that 23 minutes if, if, if that's right, of attention that gets, you know, snapped back into very short term, cannot focus space uh, every time you pull yourself into a world that is entirely virtual. Yeah, no, I, I think that there's a lot to this. And uh, the problem is that it takes ever more cleverness and work to keep the, you know, the architects of the algorithms from finding a way in. And I think, I mean, I, I, you know, this is uh, what Tristan Harris has been trying to tell us. He's a, he's a friend of ours and, and he's just, he's been exactly right. This is, this is not your friend. This is, this is a hostile force of novel nature. And 
it uh, it requires very active resistance. Otherwise, it it has just untold control. I'm reminded too, just you know, one as as long as we're making recommendations here, uh, Matthew Crawford's "The World Beyond Your Head." is uh, a, an excellent book. He's a, he's a terrific writer and thinker, but he explores exactly the attention economy and, and the ways in which actually his, his thesis is, it is our attention that we need to get back more than anything else. And mm. uh, you know, hopefully many other things will follow. So as we look to engineering that steady state that you talked about, um, how, do we, how, how do you feel, I guess, about technology being part of that without it becoming something that just as you said brett finds its clever little way to maybe get to heather on the beach rather than rather than letting us be free to create these uh, better systems well i think it's very easy because of the way we interface technology and the fact that almost none of it is without some bitter pill to imagine mm. that technology is the problem it isn't the problem. What we need to do is figure out how to wield it properly. And we, and this goes back to the question of, of markets. Um, so back, I don't know, decades ago, at the point that HBO demonstrated there was a different model for delivering uh, content right? A different business model. Actually, this is even before HBO is the recognition that what came across PBS back in the day was of a very different nature to the, you know, three camera sitcoms on network television. And so I used to say, it's not the box, it's the business model, right? There's nothing wrong with what comes across a television. It can be a nature documentary. It can be very, very stimulating and informative and worth your time. Um, and we are constantly in this, you know, there's nothing wrong with a cell phone. A cell phone could be the most marvelous device imaginable if it wasn't trying to separate you from your money in many different ways, if it wasn't trying to, to model you so that it could sell that map to somebody who wants money from you, right? These things are not healthy, but there's, you know, a device that can allow you to navigate any city in the world like a native is a marvelous device, a device that can allow you to translate any sentence from any modern language is a marvelous device. The library of Alexandria times a thousand <laughs> living in your pocket is a marvelous device. And so the real point is let's, let's get the business model back in its cage and let's figure out how to use technology in a way that it actually enhances us, right? Because that's what it's been doing since we've been, you know, flint napping stones. Technology enhances our capacity. This is a totally new phenomenon we're seeing, but it's not inherently about tech. Yeah. Are there maladaptive uh, side effects of technology that you would warn us to be particularly uh, weary of? Are there are there certain things that you are seeing as a result of the technological technological landscape that are very obvious maladaptive obstacles in the distance. Yes, you should be especially cautious about all of it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, Brett was nodding right away. I'm like, I have no idea what's on his short list. <laughs> oh, it's a very <laughs> short list. All of it. No, look, it's all of it. And the problem is, it's not that it's all harmful. Mm -hmm. It's that it's all risky because you don't know what's harmful, right? Um, and so one, you know, we, we talk about various different things in the book, like um, the extreme hazard that comes from carbon monoxide, right, which is completely odorless to us because our ancestors weren't in a special in, in special danger of encountering it in high concentrations, right? So carbon monoxide is a very simple molecule. It wouldn't be tough to have your physiology react to it the same way we do to carbon dioxide. But the point is it's a lethal hazard at the point you start engaging in industrial processes. How many things look like this, right? Blue lights, blue lights seem like, you know, they, we love them. They, the first time you see blue LEDs blinking on a something, it's like, oh, that's a wonderful little something I've just got. And the answer is no, that thing is going to confuse your pineal gland. So you're not going to know what time it is. You're not going to be able to get back to bed. And you're not going to know what happened, right? So this is everywhere, right? And the real point is, look, the LED doesn't have to be blue. 
right? And the amber LED is not as cool looking, right? But it's not going to mess up your sleep, right? How do we sort? So it's like, okay, this device is going to need an LED. It has to not be flashing where I can see it from my bed and it damn well better not be blue, right? Though that's, that's, that's not a draconian level of control. That's just like, okay, that would leave me in possession of my own mental faculties. And I would also be able to detect that my device was on. And so, I mean, that happens to be something that uh, increasingly science is on board with. Like, so, you know, the, the published literature understands the risk of blue light, blue shift light um, before bed. We've been wary of it for, for decades at this point. Um, but what really one of the lessons of the book is what all haven't we seen yet? You know, how, how do we, how can we all incorporate sufficient understanding of what our evolutionary past looked like such that as new things come across the transom at us, new products, things that people are adopting or things that the market is telling us it wants us to adopt, how can we understand enough about our history and what we've been to be wary of those things that even if we don't yet have the sort of the metric, the reductionist understanding of what it is that might be putting at risk, you know, hone our instincts enough such that when you know, your spidey sense goes, I don't think that's going to be good for me or my family or my animals or, you know, or society uh, to trust it. And then, you know, watch whether or not you were right and use that to continue to hone your instinct. So in the book, you know, I, you, you have to, of course, address this. You say that, you know, we are we are headed for a collapse society. Civilization is becoming incoherent around us. Are there like you were just mentioning there, Heather, are there maybe like a small handful of specific like evolutionary lessons or tools that we can add to our toolkit that the average person can kind of use to help them uh, start to implement some of the ideas we talked about here to help navigate this this transformation? Well, we do um, make the point that having a relationship with a person in whom you can trust completely, and you can't trust anybody's judgment completely, but there are people you can trust, right? Mm -hmm. And part of what that provides is a reality check, right? So if we are having our reality distorted by what comes across our screens and what's in you know, newspapers to the extent anybody still reads such things, um, having somebody that you can sit down and say, you know what, this doesn't add up to me, right? Do you see this the same way I do or am I missing something? is crucial. Now, we know from uh, 15 years of teaching undergraduates that a reality check is good. A shared toolkit for understanding reality is better. So two people who know the same underlying set of tools and can say, here's what's throwing me about this claim. If this were true, then these other things would also be true and they don't seem to be, right? Can we, can we reconcile that? So I would say, you know, there, I don't think there's any way around building a culture in which people have a shared baseline of assumptions, a shared set of tools, and agreement on the objective, right? So I'm less, um, I'm actually less compelled by the metaphor of the toolkit. Um, and, you know, there, there are a few things that come up, things like evolution by natural selection and the omega principle, which we, which we propose, and the idea of the, the sucker's folly and precautionary principle and Chesterton's fence, the latter two of which are not ours and they're not inherently evolutionary, but they are things that you would need to, to employ in the modern world in order to live your best life, we are, argue. I, I prefer the other main metaphor that we use for you know what this what this approach can provide for you as a lens, an evolutionary lens, um, by which you know you use the tools, the understanding, you know, an evolutionary understanding of the world to approach problems that you that you see or um, you know policies that are coming down at you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we come up against the time here somewhat soon, uh, I want to give you guys a chance to maybe make any closing remarks or tell us a little bit about anything you're working on that you'd like to send people to. Um, obviously, tell people where they can find the book, um, anything at all. Ah, well, where you can find the book is uh, hopefully in your local bookshop. It's certainly available online at this point. There was a book drought. It's over. <laughs> Um, it is now available even 
on Amazon. Um, the audiobook is also available through Audible in the U.S. And we narrated it. We narrated it. People are nice. very fond of the audiobook. Um, you can find us on the Dark Horse podcast. We do live streams on Saturday, 1230, typically Pacific time. Uh, you can find Heather at Heather E. Hying on Twitter. I am Brett Weinstein with one T on Twitter. Heather has a sub stack, which is natural selections. Natural selections. Yeah, but do you, do you want to say anything else content wise to wrap us up? content wise um it's, it's it's a tough question you know as you you read the book clearly yeah um and uh it's it's big and broad right it's kind of it's it's in some ways the everything book and and we actually hope that one or both of us may turn one or more of the chapters in that book into into books of their own and so the fact that it explores nearly all of the systems um, at some level that humans engage in from, you know, food and sleep to sex and relationship to childhood and school to adulthood and, and then to society, you know, the, the population level stuff about which we have spent a fair bit of the conversation today suggests that, you know, we, we really want people to be reading this and talking about it um, because we think and this was our experience for 15 years teaching um, college undergraduates, um, that herein, this evolutionary lens does actually provide some of the answers to the sense of chaos and incoherence that pretty much all of us are feeling at least sometimes right now. And that this is, it's more than just a mismatch between what we have evolved for and what we are becoming, uh, but that is a big part of what's going on. Yeah, consider me a member of the converted. That's uh, I've found that same love of evolution several years ago, and it's really helped uh, bring a lot of clarity to my my life as well. So, one hundred percent agree. So wonderful. Awesome. And we'll leave it there, Brett and Heather. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you.